This is ASEN, the Association for the Study of Ethnicity and Nationalism. To find out more, visit asen.ac.uk. Well, uh, good afternoon. I'm very grateful to the organizers of this great conference for having uh, invited me to participate to this uh, round table. <laughs> All the more that I did not have the, the honor and the pleasure to know Anthony Smith personally, and I certainly don't consider myself a specialist of uh, nationalism. I'm a French political sociologist, um, mainly interested in citizenship, in reactions towards European integration and social science methods. My interest in nationalism uh, follows from that. It is a quite contemporary, focused on Western European countries and on the way citizens experience it or feel about it. A set of interests thus, that do not particularly match Anthony Smith's own interests, according to the debate he had with John Fox and Cynthia Miller-Idris about their everyday nationhood agenda. Indeed, what I thought I could share with you today is a series of interrogations related to this debate and to the relationship between banal nationalism, so Billick's book, Billick's thesis, um, and nationalism studies. Oh, it should not be that. <laughs> yes. Um, but I want to point out that I don't speak on, uh, on his behalf, on, on, on Billick's behalf. I don't know him uh, personally either. So each time I refer to his work, it will be my own interpretation. It could be another discussion, but not the one I want to have today. Um, so, supposons. I've been uh, reading recently the discussions uh, that banal nationalism generated since it was published more than 20 years ago. And I am surprised to see how it has become considered as a founder work of everyday nationalism that is defined on the State of Nationalism website as a subfield that focuses attention on the masses and human agency within nationalism studies. And uh, Eleanor Note, who, who wrote the, the paper explaining what is uh, everyday nationalism, explains the everyday nationalism approach builds on billig work on banal nationalism, but diverts its focus on human agency. In my understanding of Billig's work, the everyday nationalism agenda does mo much more than divert from it. It denies, more or less implicitly, its thesis. Banal nationalism was written in order to reveal the constant reminder, reminder of national belonging in established democracies, as well as its legitimizing effect on the international or violent order of a world divided into nations. To me, this denial of Billing's main line of argumentation might not have happened by chance and needs to be explained. I shall briefly summarize how it seems to have happened according to what I read, and then I'll suggest explanation that will lead me to a few conclusions regarding the future of nationalism, or at least the study, the study of nationalism. So, Banal Nationalism was published in 1995. Michael Billig wrote it after the other book, Talking of the Royal Family, where he analyzed a series of collective interviews with family members. He then found an amazingly high level of national pride. In this discussion, the division of the world into nations and national belonging appeared natural features and were never debated. 
Billig reports how Isis went on reading major work on nationalism, Gellner, Anderson, and Anthony Smith in particular, and found their work fascinating. But if it made really clear how nations were built, it did not explain how the national imaginary continues to be so powerful. As you know, Billig then suggested that the reason why nationalism, that is, the perceived naturalness of an international order based on the division of the world into nations, if, uh, so if nationalism remains so powerful in countries such as the UK or the US, long after the years of mobilization and nation building, it is because people are reminded of it all the time. They are constantly reminded that they are national public, that they are nationals, by public actors, media, marketing, architecture, art, etc., in such a way that they do not pay attention to it. But, and Billy again makes it very clear, nationalism, be it banal or not, is violent. Banal nationalism maintains a strong hierarchy between countries and people in societies that consider themselves based on human rights. Nations are always first, and all crimes against human beings are acceptable if they are perpetrated in the name of an acknowledged nation. There is no doubt that Billig's message was clearly understood from the beginning. And I, I could refer to uh, Montserrat Guiberno's review in Nation and Nationalism in 1997. But it seems that, as a constant reminder of the nation, it's been forgotten. It seems that this, this begins with Edenza's book, National Identity, Popular Culture, and Everyday Life, published in, in 2000, uh, well, I said one, but I think it's two, written in defense of popular culture and cultural studies. Here, Edenza singles out Billig as the only scholars, scholar interested in the everyday dimension of nationalism, which I think so far is correct, but also as someone who paves the way to a bottom-up approach of nationalism. Edenza analyzes the way nations are experienced in everyday life, emphasizing individual experience, experiences. This understanding of banal nationalism was later confronted by Fox and Miller Idris in the already mentioned and programmatic article on everyday nationhood. They quote Edenza and Billig together as evidences of, I quote, recent increased interest in the way in which nationhood is negotiated and reproduced in everyday life. As we know, Anthony Smith responded in a quite critical way to the everyday, everyday nationhood agenda. There is no question that his response contributed to the visibility of the article and at the same time to the assimilation between Edenzer and Billig's approaches. In 2009, in a paper entitled The National in Everyday Life, a critical engagement with Michael Billig's thesis of banal nationalism, Michael Skay did properly address Billig's critical analysis of the everyday nationalism. And in, uh, yeah, sorry. I will not get into the detail of his criticism, especially since Billig already replied to him. What I find interesting here is that in his book, published two years later, Skay actually confirmed thanks to the collective interviews and analysis, most of Billig's point. He confirms, in particular, the omnipresence of the nation in discussions that were not directly related to it, as well as the general belief uh, in its naturalness and national belonging. But instead of, borrowing, of, of following Billig's worries about it, it then suggests that the omnipresence of the nation in everyday life may be of practical and psychological value as it gives people an ongoing sense of self, place, and community. The ideas of national belonging fulfills human needs 
and has to be acknowledged and studied as such is a re recurring argument for scholars like, yeah, I quote Macron and Beschoffer, because I remember the, um, the book uh, discussion uh, we had this year um, um, about understanding national identity, and more generally Scottish, Welsh, Irish, and now English academics who work on national identity in the context of the devolution and whose work has been prolific. They do disagree with Billig, but they rarely relate to disagreement directly, they, they, sorry, they rarely relate their disagreement directly to his denunciation of nationalism. They rather oppose the emphasis put on the state by the banal nationalism uh, thesis, which clearly show, shows that the author's interest is focused on nationalism in nation states, which does not mean, as it is also regularly commented, that Billig ever considered, I think, that, national, uh, that banal nationalism was to be observed only in Western or settled nations. Billig only attracted our attention towards something we were inclined not to see or to forget. The fact that nationalism is, has omnipresent in countries like Britain, France, or the United States, that it is in separatist or newly established countries which are thus overly nationalists. Billy got plenty of occasions to clarify things, and he actually did. So I read it. <laughs> we could discuss my interpretation of his work, but this is not the reason why I took you into this very quick, quick tour of banal nationalism reception. The point I wanted to make is that the recurrent, the recurrent understatement of Billig's clear denunciation of nationalism in nationalism studies is something I think we should pay attention to, especially in the current context of increasing political and electoral success of nationalism. You know that the elections in front at the moment, so I feel a bit concerned. I feel this has to be underlined and explained. I shall now suggest a series of possible complementary explanations that have come to my mind while I was first realizing and then documenting this gap. So I really was reading for two or three months on what was discussed about banal nationalism. So first, possible explanation. We have no time to read anymore. We cannot totally dismiss the idea that if the book was not correctly understood and referred, it is the hazardous consequence of the current state of social research where we are also busy securing funding and publishing that we cannot afford to read entire books, not to mention someone else's work. Reputation has us partly a matter of chance and of the way you've been quoted in the beginning. Second. Another explanation could be the economy of subfields in social sciences. Here I see two processes that could explain what I consider to me a misunderstanding of Billig's work. The one, uh, loving what subject. I tend to think that subfields are fields where scholars have much difficulties to dislike the object. As I said, I don't consider myself as being part of national studies. I come from European studies. This is where I met Atsuko, actually. <laughs> and this is what I have experienced there. People in the field cannot but be horrified. If you are not committed to the future of the European Union, you're soon considered Eurosceptic. And the best thing you can do is to run away, which I eventually did. I wonder if there is not something of the sort going on here. I think Billig made clear that he does not believe in national identity not, at least, as an interior and universal human disposition. 
I quote him, national identities are a form of social life rather than internal psychological states. As such, they are ideological creations, creations caught up in the historical processes of nationhood. He feels uncomfortable when he realizes, realizes that he behaves as a nationalist, and he does, as we all do. He thus considers nationalism as a very powerful and dangerous ideology, heir to the worst ideologies humanity had to cope with uh, in the 20th century. Sorry. According to what I heard during these two days, I don't think that many of us in the conference, at least the majority of us, share either his antipathy for nationalism or his skepticism regarding national identity. Not only subfield might have a tendency to attract scholars who like the object, they are also necessarily interdisciplinary, and that also comes with a price. Along the year, scholars in that area tend to lose touch with disciplines, some of their disciplines, in the sense that they do not keep aware of each discipline internal debates. You cannot do that. I mean, when you have too many disciplines in the field, you cannot read all of it. In this case, I observe in nationalism studies the same limited relationship with social psychology, which basically tends to reduce, to reduce it, to reduce social psychology to social identity theory. Uh, apart from the last uh, panel I was uh, <laughs> just before. Billy uh, was a student of Henry uh, Tashfeld, the father of social identity theory, from which categorization and the in-out in group dynamic have been imported. But both are considered the alpha and omega of the relationship between people and political identities in European studies for sure, but I tend to believe from what I read also in national uh, uh, studies, in nationalism studies. But Billig took his distance and scientifically speaking with Tashfeld and developed his own psycho-sociological uh, approach which is explicitly anti-scientist and anti-cognitivist. I will not make now a presentation of, of Billig's rhetorical psychology. Uh, well, I do recommend to read Arguing and Thinking. My point here is that banal nationalism, I think, cannot be interpreted properly without referring to Billig's general social science approach. And this approach is quite foreign to the general position of nationalism studies regarding sociological psychology. This might also contribute to explaining how his work was important in nationalism studies in, I think, an, an appropriate way. Uh, no, sorry. I should not. Um, I think a third line of explanation is possible. Yes, it is. Uh, which relate to the title of my contribution, which, by the way, is different from the one I sent to Esther uh, a couple of weeks ago. I'm sorry about that. So are we afraid of banal nationalism? You might have heard of the Wilfred, uh, with Afraid of Virginia Woolf play, which was also a film with Elizabeth Taylor and Burt Lancaster. Um, its author, Edward Albee, explained that this title meant to him was afraid of living a life without false illusion. I think that it is the same with banal nationalism. It is difficult as a citizen, a human being, to give up the national imagination. Someone yesterday talked about national fantasy. The idea that you belong to something that gives you its power and lets you enter in eternity. All the more that the nationalist ideology, which is one more time, according to Billig, the only international ideology, reminds you, reminds you of it all the time. So my conclusion, and I think I'm right... I just explained this picture. So I'm, I'm at Oxford for a couple of months as an academic, and I like 
I like film, I like movies, so I go to the cinema. And each time I go to the cinema, I get one of these um, British uh, Royal Army um, uh, advertisement, which explain me what is belonging. So, and I, I've come to, to get obsessed with it. So um, I personally, this time, it's not Billig, I personally think that our role as social scientists is to confront, it's to confront, confront sorry, this disillusion to make everything we can to dispel the fantasy. We need for that to affront complicated methodological problems, but this is what social sciences are made for. Find the ways to bring out what is concealed by power relationship and human fragility, in this case, the current omnipotence of nationalism. If we want it to end, and I do want it to end, we are first in line. Thank you for your attention. Right, I want to um, thank the organisers of the conference for inviting me and especially thank John Hutchinson who I think suggested it <laughs> to cries of, who the hell is she? Um, anyway, <laughs> so yes, I do love alliteration. I didn't realise how much I loved it until I tran tried translating my own work once into Dutch and it was a disaster because alliteration doesn't translate well. So, I just today want to quickly whiz through my ideas for where we might take nationalism studies, not just in terms of the study of America. So, reviewing the British Museum's exhibition, which is still on, you can go and see it, The American Dream Pop to the Present, Guardian journalist Jonathan Jones equated the artworks on display to the quotes, ruins of a lost civilization. The archaeological atmosphere, that's his words, of the event produced more than what he called an uneasy nostalgia in him. In the context of some of America's most powerful 20th century art, Jones writes, he understood two things very clearly. There is such a thing as American civilization, big of them, and we are watching it die. Trump hasn't been in office for 100 days, and already I am tired to the ends of my being with people announcing what a surprise it was and how dreadful it was, and I think we have to be careful here. Um, I'm not just going to say in Europe, because we're not all from Europe, but you know, not all our leaders are intellectual tower houses. Not all our countries have always elected brilliant people. So, you know, what's Trump going to do? I have no idea, but I think it merits serious um, assessment rather than just press the Trump button for a joke. And I suppose the other point I want to make is that, you know, reports of the death of American civilization, as indeed the death of the famous author Mark Twain, may be exaggerated. Both popular cultural and scholarly debate on the subject, however, tends sooner or later to invoke this concept of the American dream as both um, shorthand and sort of synecdoche for a more complex 
and frequently far from coherent nationalist narrative that seeks to counteract and subsume by its very vagueness the contradictions that uh, created the national creed. So my point is it shouldn't really come as a surprise to us that you know, for some in the early 21st century the American dream can sometimes seem more like a nightmare. Both interpretations of America's national landscape, the positive and the negative alike, have been integral to the nation since its inception. So in this respect, I would suggest, current concerns about America's apparently rapid right turn may plausibly be located within the generative matrix described by Slavoj Žižek. The nation's shift in 2016 toward the politics of populist nationalism is very much, in my view, an event that is entirely inscribed in the logic of the existing order, even as it is misperceived as a radical rupture by many scholars and journalists. So in etymological terms, scholars have long recognized a symbiotic relationship between dream and nightmare or trauma. In America's case, this juxtaposition of hope and horror predated the establishment of the nation itself, the political state, and can be traced to its colonial beginnings. And it took visual form um, in the contradictory images of America in circulation over the course of the 16th and 17th centuries. So you have depictions of Spanish atrocities, depiction of Spanish atrocity, um, against native peoples, which was followed several decades later by the suggestion, the contrary suggestion, that the new world might offer a new start in images equating it with Eden before the fall. So this is a frontispiece of a, a, a very um, widely distributed propagandist um, work designed to raise money for uh, the exploratory venture in the United States, but obviously that. There's Eden and there's Eve about to ruin all our lives. It's most blatantly, I think, inscribed, this contradiction, in the ambitions of those who founded the various companies that created what became the United States and the harsh lives of those who actually went there and struggled to um, make a life. The disconnect is starkly rendered in the publication in 1609 of a very famous propagandist pamphlet called Nova Britannia, which painted this amazing picture, very much like this, of, um, of the land, promised colonists, quotes, an earthly paradise inhabited by welcoming natives and abounding in everything required for human life. And the onset that very same year of what's become known to historians as a starving winter, where uh, two-thirds of the colonists died from starvation or native attack, and one man was driven to murder and eat his wife. Um, whether of starvation or something else, can't be sure. So there is this contrast that's been there from the very beginning. And for those who arrived later, the Puritans, whose settlement in what became New England was not quite so fraught or initially so fatal, there is still this duality at the heart of the American dream. The Great Migration, this is what they called it, carried within it the seeds of both triumph and tragedy, spiritual salvation and secular calamity. The new worlds of wonder, and that was a phrase at the time, contained witches, but they were very much of the colonists' own making. So really what I want to just you know, very briefly do today is, is suggest to you that it's in those divisions, this idea of America as the Eden, this idea of America as a kind of hell, 
It's in these divisions that scholars might profitably identify the central core and individual components of American nationalism and arguably alter our angle of vision on an approach to nationalism more broadly, and particularly by developing Anthony Smith's concept of what he called a nation of intent. It may be of more value to us as nationalism scholars to locate the nation neither as a fixed, um, if sometimes fluctuating, territorial unit, but rather as a continuous journey whose direction can best be traced through elements of trauma that at various points in its history either threatened national existence um, overtly or undermined national ideology um, covertly. So I want to suggest this trajectory of trauma you know, follows the fissures created by the unresolved racial, sectional, and martial tensions that taken together form a kind of watermark behind the blueprint for a nation drawn up by the founding fathers in the 18th century, a form of shadow nation, in effect, under which the modern American state operates with ever-decreasing returns. Now, part of the problem is, I think, that we have accepted the founding myth of the United States. And if I say we haven't probed it, that sounds a bit strange, because there are thousands and thousands of books on the American Revolution. And when I say we haven't probed it, I don't mean we have not taken into account those for whom the revolution was a disaster, the loyalists who either fled to Canada or came back to Great Britain who, who lost their land. It's not that that I think is the problem with the American Revolution and this idea of a, a, a people rising up to establish their own identity. It's how, when you drill down into it, the revolution was actually achieved. And particularly if you, as a historian, you, you drill down into what people like Washington were saying, you find he was very unhappy with the kinds of people who were fighting for freedom in this new world. And I think this kind of continues. So you have the revolution and then you have my area of expertise, the Civil War. And it's the same story there, really, that you have this, this pattern of this, this mythological interpretation of these wars and I think this is where John Hutchinson's new book is going to be really crucial as I try and think through some of this. Because I think warfare is very important, but it's much more destructive as a force of national identity. So this is, a, you know, the national landscape when you actually look at it. This is a quick historiographical scamper. That, you know, historians are very lucky in that every so often people have actually asked Americans, you know, what are you fighting for? What do you think? What does a nation mean to you? And the first modern example of that was after the Second World War when the psychological studies were done asking soldiers you know, what it was they were fighting for. So we have some idea of combat motivation, some idea of national sentimentality. But as you can see, this idea of, of sacrifice and this idea of the Civil War was this glorious story, which it used to be. You know, the nation was formed in the Revolution, was threatened by civil war, but the nation held together, emancipation was achieved, and everyone lived happily ever after, has come under attack. So I mean, I've just put up some titles here, but you know, recently we've got Drew Gilpin Faust's famous work on the Republic of Suffering, which is all about death in the civil war, which there are problems with, but we can talk about that later if you're interested. And then you've got this, this, this slough of books that look increasingly a depressing side of warfare in terms of national construction. You've got Eric Dean comparing the Civil War with Vietnam. David Silkenat, a couple of years ago, wrote about divorce, despair, and suicide. 
Jim Downs has written about how hardly anybody survived emancipation and they all died of yellow fever and goodness knows what else. You've got Michael Adams writing you know, this book, Living Hell, clues in the title. And most recently, Caroline Janey, who has looked at the limits, what she calls the limits of reconciliation during the Civil War. So I think from a point of view of American nationalism, we're at an interesting juncture. There have been these earlier studies that focused on the state, that looked at war in the state. I've given you a couple there. Um, and the focus is very much on pensions. And then recently, these two books, Mittelstadt's The Rise of the Military Welfare State and Brooks's How Everything Became War, look at how integral warfare is to American national identity. But of course, it's just... It's not that straightforward, I suppose. Smith has drawn our attention to, you know, myths and memories. We all know that in many cases these are fixed in statues, fixed in visual images, put onto the national landscape. And this is one of the most famous ones from the Union point of view. This is a representation of a monument in, on Boston Common. Um, it depicts a white officer, Robert Gould Shaw. He's the one on the horse. <laughs> Um, and the Massachusetts 54th, who were one of the most famous, not the first, but the most famous African-American regiments to fight in the Civil War. It's a story of triumph. The Union holds the nation together. The Union affects emancipation. Everything's marvelous. But this is a reality which doesn't get put onto statues. This is the memory. Now, memory fades, and the new generations perhaps don't remember, but this was the landscape of the war. And what am I showing you here? What are you looking at? You're not looking at soldiers' tents. You're looking at hospital tents. This is just one view, and I cannot overstress how this was a typical view from Washington, D.C. during the Civil War in every direction. White tents with dying, wounded men in. That is the memory which went into the national body, physically in terms of individual soldiers, but at a more insidious level where it slightly contradicted this kind of dramatic, you know, heroic imagery. And my contention is that it's the memory of this image, the image of the suffering, the image of the death, the image of the wounding, that persists and undermines the role of warfare as a cohesive national force. So that was the Union statue. Of course, the Confederate statues, which proliferated, like I think somebody else used the phrase like a virus on the landscape, They've become a new site of contention. This is a statue to the Confederacy, the defenders of Charleston. It's in Charleston, South Carolina. You will see it has been attacked by somebody who can't spell. It's so unfortunate. Good point made. Bad spelling. It's not the only statue. Indeed, Black Lives Matter has been sprayed across most of the statues in the former Confederacy. So they're used... These statues now have become sites of challenge to American national identity and this idea that perhaps the nation does not speak for all. So, you know, to conclude, this is my tentative taxonomy of trauma or how not to make America great again. I do wonder, and I don't have all the answers, this is very much a, you know, a suggestion and I would welcome any you know, points that you have to make or discussion. I think in many nationalisms, we look, we're too keen to look for what holds a nation together, which does not mean that we don't understand that there are contrary narratives, there are counter-narratives, 
but we perhaps see them not quite so much as the threat that they are. And so I think when you've got civil conflict and both the revolution and the civil war and up to a point in Vietnam, although that was different, it wasn't Americans fighting Americans, but it was America coming apart over a conflict. Civil conflict often results in a legacy of grievance that is not easily ever absorbed back into the national mythos. So that's my first point. The second point is the ethnic conflict. In the particular case of America, you have the native nations, you have slavery, you have immigration. The racial legacies of these, I think we've been too quick to assume that they are being worked out. I don't want to sound old and cynical, and it saddens me to say it, but you know, on the Martin Luther King Memorial, it says, the moral arc of the universe is long and it tends towards justice. I don't think it does in America's case. I don't think it ever has. Not since the Puritans arrived, not since ever. You've got cultural insecurities. So the nation looks outward. It's an outward focus. It makes these statements on the landscape, but it neglects the local. It neglects the hinterland. It neglects Wisconsin and Michigan, particularly. There are economic and military securities as well, which I think also have that risk of being outward focused and ignoring what's happening with the nation itself. I think perhaps we need to reconsider, you know, the rather glib way that sometimes we think about sacrifice for the nation, because in particular cases, I showed you of American historiography, there's a devaluation of sacrifice. The sacrifices seem to not have been worth it. Emancipation did not achieve equality for African Americans. There's a misreading of the past, and this is perhaps the crux of it for America. Almost all books quote the sermon that was preached before um, the, the Puritans went the, the, by John Winthrop, um, and he preached a sermon that America was going to be a city on a hill for all the world to look at. And then later, of course, during the Civil War, Abraham Lincoln famously referred to America as the last best hope of Earth. And scholars often interpret this as, as overt statements of American imperialism, but they're not. They are both very much derived from the Puritan Jeremiah tradition. Um, and Sack van Berkovich has written an excellent book on that if you're interested. It's a critical gaze. The Puritans who landed, they wanted to be a city on a hill, but the idea was God was judging them, the world was judging them. This wasn't a statement of, we're going to be brilliant. It was a statement of, we have to do well, or it's going to go badly for us you know, in the afterlife. So, to finish with Trump... <laughs> and I hope the nation doesn't, but hey-ho, Trump is very much in this tradition. This is not a break from some, you know, continuous Whig onward trajectory of, of you know, national imperialism. It's, he misuses the American past, and that's where the threat to the nation's future, to its ideological mission, you know, resides. But my point is it's not an original trajectory. It's an alternative one that's been there since the beginning, that's been there since the colonial period, and perhaps that applies to some other nations as well. And I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. But thank you very much. Thanks, John. I want to start by just saying thanks to Asen and John and the committee for asking me to do this and, and 
mark uh, Anthony's passing. Uh, I didn't know Anthony well, uh, but he was always a very collegial and friendly uh, presence for me when I was here at ASIN. Uh, and you know, I won't, you know, we all know about his various contributions, but I just thought I'd start by saying, you know, it strikes me that in a time of uh, where academic life is increasingly uh, subject to individualized performance measurements, uh, Anthony clearly was very concerned about building intellectual community. Uh, and this is the evidence of that, whether it's imagined or real, I don't care. Um, it's, that's, that's the thing that I personally want to sort of acknowledge most fundamentally uh, about Anthony's contribution. Uh, I have kind of three headings under which to say some things. Uh, one, a bit about Anthony Smith's contribution and how I see it, a bit about how I diverge from how he sees things, and then I'll uh, get on to speculations about the future. Um, if, if I'm lucky, the first bits will stretch out and I'll have to compress the future bit because that's the bit I'm the least confident about. Um, if you knew what I thought about uh, what was going to happen in regard to Brexit and, uh, and the U.S. presidential election, you wouldn't want my advice about the future. Um, but anyways, uh, so uh, to start out by saying some things about uh, Smith's contribution, um, the, uh, you know, we all know, it's been said many times at this conference that he, you know, he was not somebody who saw himself as producing a theory. There are no big diagrams with causal arrows and stuff in his books. He's, uh, I think his real contribution uh, was along the lines work of conceptualization. I mean, I think that's what uh, he will be remembered for. Uh, the work of, you know, along in a kind of Weberian ideal type sort of way, thinking about uh, certain uh, uh, terms. He talked about ethnies and aristocratic and democratic variants of ethnies, borrowed the term from Mythimo of Mythimoteurs from John Armstrong. He uh, um, talked about golden ages and chosen peoples, and each one of these terms is not uh, their terms that were already there, but he appropriated them and decided to try and, through filtering his kind of vast historical knowledge about these concepts, try to give them some sort of more useful, you know, coherent uh, understanding. And I just want to say that that's, uh, this conceptualizing work off fundamentally comes prior to the theorizing. You can't theorize if you don't have concepts, and so it's, it's fundamental work that's very important. I may not agree with him about all, all the way he conceptualized some things, but, but that was, I think, what was very important about his thinking. Uh, so no, no sin not to be a theorist with a capital T. Um, and I think, you know, uh, one of his main contributions, obviously we all know, was his uh, attention to the problem of historical continuity, uh, uh, through what came to be known as the ethnosymbolic approach. Um, I myself come closer to the kind of modernist view that he was often very critical of. Um, uh, but I appreciated the way that he challenged a kind of what you might call lazy modernism, a tendency to conceptualize uh, a difference between a modern and a primordial or traditional, however you want to put the past, in terms of a kind of logical opposition. Whatever modern is, the previous stuff must be all the opposite. The point I'm making here is, is similar to, I think, what Professor Grosby was saying this morning about uh, his dissatisfaction with Gemeinschaft, Gesellschaft kind of models uh, that spare you actually doing the work of looking at what the problems of continuity are. Um, so following on from that, I mean, two kind of points that I would make um, uh, is that, you know, you know, some might argue that questions about the origins of nationalism are getting kind of old hat and theoretically threadbare. You know, I myself at one point have suggested that primordialist modernist debates are somewhat exhausted or kind of argued to a standstill. Uh, but that doesn't get us out of the problem that how you define 
social phenomena is inevitably implicated in how we understand their origins. You can't, you can't deal with those two things uh, uh, individually. I'm thinking of a kind of a conversation I had in an Antwerp train station with uh, uh, John Fox over coffee in which he was expressing just being fed up with all this historical stuff. Uh, he's, he's into everyday nationalism. Um, but, you know, my response to John is, well, fine, but I don't think you can really uh, do what we have to do and just bypass that problem because how nations got here bears upon what they are. And more generally, whether one sees historical rupture or historical continuity in the emergence of modern nations depends on how you define the object uh, and what questions you are asking about it. So if you think of the object of the nation as uh, a complex of identity and culture, uh, you're going to have one kind of set of uh, the, the problem of continuity, historical continuity, is going to mean something different from if you think of a nation as a kind of particular form of the social organization of power at a certain point in history. That, uh, so there's a lot of talking past each other here, right? Uh, the, if, you're not, if you don't have the same com, uh, concept in the first place, there's going to be um, the debate is somewhat artificial. Um, the other thing I want to say about Smith's work um, is that I myself have never seen uh, his work as ag- exemplifying a kind of cultural essentialism in contrast to social constructionism. So here I don't know if Umut is with us, but uh, I'm sort of disagreeing with him. Um, uh, uh, because, you know, there's a very important sense in which, you know, we're all social constructionists now. I mean, we all kind of accept some of the basic premises. And Anthony clearly appreciated the ideas and that ideas and identities that constitute nationalisms are socially constructed, made of somewhat pliable symbolic materials. In fact, you might say, well, that's what the ethno-symbolism approach asserts, you know, quite fundamentally. Uh, but at the point for Anthony was that these social constructions are deeply embedded in human experience and remarkably durable in many cases. The, the point is not whether things are socially constructed, it's how uh, uh, hard and difficult to change or how kind of impervious uh, these social constructions are. That's, that's what I think the issue is. And so we could avoid some confusion if we accept that. Now let me say a few things about where I diverge from Anthony, and it's you know, uh, it, you know this is it's it, this is an arbitrary thing. It just happens to be me speaking, so I'm talking about my divergence. But it's uh, it it could be uh, 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 play out very differently from somebody else. But um, the first thing I'd want to say is that uh, intellectual resistance is a kind of influence. Uh, it's a kind of intellectual influence. So if I disagree with Anthony on some points. Uh, that is a specific act of disagreeing with him, right? And that is part of his influence. His influence isn't just those who agreed or, you know, follow along in the same way of thinking about things. It's, uh, and that's a mark of uh, being important. Um, so, you know, I suppose the main difference between me and Anthony, if we were trying to sum it up, sum it up with a kind of aphorism, uh, I think you might say Anthony, Anthony's position was something like, identity makes power. And my position is something like power makes identity. By that, uh, what I mean is Anthony generally saw strong patterns of identity, of social investment in the authenticity of the group as a factor contributing uh, to the longevity and survival of nations. I'm inclined towards the opposite view, that effective social organization of any kind will generate social power, 
which in turn fosters forms of identity around those forms of social organization. This is true of states, national movements, churches, unions, political parties, and forms of social organization, and so on, you know, ad infinitum. For this reason, I do not share the skepticism of some towards the utility of the concept of identity in the social sciences. And here I have to point out my dear friend, uh, Sinisha Malasevich, um, uh, and I'm thinking of the well-known article by Rogers Brubaker and Frederick Cooper, where they also called into question the utility of the concept of identity. I don't have a problem with the concept of identity. I think strong identification is an index of power organizations and helps us explain their efficacy, but it is their... Uh, it is an effect of these, effect of the organization of power, not their original cause. For me, as I've said it there before, you know, power makes identity rather than identity making power. And I think this is largely, you know, Anthony largely took the opposite view, and that's kind of a point where I disagree with him. Uh, This understanding of the relationship between identity and power has shaped my particular version of modernism, uh, which you might call political or perhaps Tocquevillian, uh, as opposed to an economic or culturally-based conception of what modernity is about. Uh, I've stressed the emergence of the modern demos uh, in the rise of of nationalism and tend to see ethnicity as a secondary factor in a way similar to people like Michael Mann, Jack Snyder. Uh, So my view is that once uh, uh, a people has has been established and charged with governing itself, uh, one raises a permanent problem of who this people is, and or are, is, are, and how they want to govern themselves. For me, nationalism is this standing political democratic problem of identity, and, it, and it's always a provisional solution or provisional answer. Uh, it's not an effect of pre-existing identities. But again, going back to what I was saying earlier, you know, that the upshot of that may be not whether I or Anthony or ethnosymbolists have are right or wrong about nationalism, we may be talking about very different things. You just have to accept that. Um, okay, well, I've, I've managed to keep it a good clip, so I'm, now I'm faced with the future. I have to say something <laughs> about the future. Um, uh, as we all know, uh, Anthony was part of a now-passing generation of nationalism scholars, generated a remarkable set of go- books in the 1980s that were very influential. People like Gellner, Hobsbawm, Anderson, Connor. I have to point out some of them have not passed yet. Thank um, uh, uh, and, and that's kind of fertile set of ideas, interestingly, was then uh, picked up and given uh, further life by the events of 1989, the collapse of the Soviet Union, 9-11, globalization, various things have kind of uh, churned some, this kind of set of ideas that were interestingly kind of articulated before a lot of these key events happened, right? Uh, so in recent years, I've wondered if, you know, maybe some of that intellectual energy was spent and it was being dissipated and maybe the whole uh, nationalism studies project was losing steam. Uh, but uh, re- recent political events uh, uh, in my original homeland uh, in the United States and in my adoptive homeland in the UK and Scotland have given me a grim conviction that the study of nationalism is alive and kicking. Uh, the rise of new populist politics in the UK and the US manifest in events such as Brexit and Donald Trump's uh, success in the presidential cam- uh, campaign are simply signal examples of a wider global trend of wide and deep disenchantment uh, uh, of established political parties. And this isn't uniformly uh, of the right. You, know, it, you, know, you can think about what's happened in Iceland or 
the, what's going on in Brazil, it's, it's, it's attacking its traditional labor, but you know, there, there are various kinds of populism going on in very different ways. Um, I guess one of my most basic points would be that the future study of nationalism will be and probably should be uh, driven by events, uh, and there are plenty of events. Uh, um, so uh, this new wave of populism is, uh, that I've mentioned is one thing, but uh, heightened economic competition between countries and regions, the possible dissolution of the European Union, ecological crises and the disruption of, and suffering that that will cause, uh, warfare and unrest, Syria, Iraq, Turkey, Ukraine, on and on, uh, ensuing population movements and anti-immigration politics, and tensions around the South China Sea, uh, is, you know, in, in involving relationships between China, North and South Korea, Taiwan, Hong Kong, Japan. Uh, I was recently in Japan talking to a, a colleague there, and, and palpable sense of anxiety about uh, uh, the state of things in that part of the world. So part of my answer is the world will tell us what's, what, what the future is. I think, think some theoretical trends will keep on. Uh, the, the you know, work of people like Rogers Brubaker and uh, Andreas Wimmer, with a kind of strongly constructionist approach to ethnicity. I think the work of people interested in everyday banal forms of nationalism that John Fox and colleagues are working on, I think those things will continue. But it's not really for me to sort of say what the next theoretical uh, or you know, dominant theoretical trend will be. Um, I would just say in closing that, you know, I'm sure that the modern problem of the demos, as I was, which I was saying central to my own view of things, isn't going away. And if anything, it will be intensified by the new turn to populism as national uh, populations are pushed by political leaders into zero-sum understandings of their economic relations with others, while contestations within those populations over who we really are, what we believe, intensify. So this is not a situation I would have chosen. Uh, but I think the study of nationalism, nationalism strikes me as being as urgent as ever. Secrets. Uh, all right. So thank you all uh, very much for being here and organizers for putting this conference together. It's really, uh, uh, I think, uh, I mean, Anthony Smith has really shaped this field, as we all know. But what I will miss most, I think, from uh, Anthony is that uh, he cultiv cultivated really that culture of, of tolerance and alternative views. And I think he was very excited. He was sort of unique among leading scholars that he developed his own approach, and he also uh, knew better than anybody else, uh, you know, what, what, where the field is. Since, you know, he wrote all these different books, not about only his own approach, but about summaries and kind of critical engagement with different approaches. And he was really excited by these different views. So, so in that spirit, uh, since I come, as, jo as Jonathan as well, from the other side <laughs> of this debate, uh, I, I think it's, it's really maybe fitting that we finish this conference with, with uh, two uh, modernists or sympathetic modernists, I don't know. <laughs> I, I think, to, it, in a way, I think that's what, what probably Smith would like to see as well. Uh, so uh, what I want to do today in, in, in these 15 minutes or so that I have 
is to uh, engage to some extent with this whole idea of uh, whether a modernist uh, uh, can tell us more than they actually have been, uh, 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 in a sense, they've been accused for not, not engaging with, with the long-term trends, with, with the sociology of, of the long, long durée. And, uh, and, in, and that, in, in some respect, is linked with, with, with the topic of our roundtable round on the future of nationalism. And in some respects, to say something about future, we know uh, we have to know the past properly, uh, uh, particularly phenomena like nationalism. There is a lot of debate on new nationalism, often by analysts who don't really know much about nationalism, apart from America. I think you are the only one engaging in these debates who has background in this field. So I think that, that's why it's important for us to kind of go back and, and, and look at these very, very long-term uh, trends. So I think in that respect, Anthony was, was right that a long durée approach is an important approach to understand these, uh, the social change over very long periods of time. Uh, although my, my issue with, with, with his particular version of long durée is that it is too culturalist uh, and perhaps epistemologically too idealist that we might have disagreements over this. Uh, my focus will really be on, on kind of uh, uh, looking at long, long durée from a modernist uh, point of view. And I uh, uh, often, you know, uh, Anthony's uh, ethnosymbolism and John Hutchinson's and others' ethnosymbolism is seen as being kind of this alternative the only long durée alternative to modernism, and modernism is often accused, Smith used often that Peel's quote of being blocking presentism and all of that, and I agree that some versions of it are, are uh, uh, very presentist. Gellner is explicitly so, you know, he's not really interested in what happened, uh, and Grosby mentioned that this morning, he's not really interested in, in past, but many others are, and I think there is a possibility to rescue this so we can look at a uh, you know, variety of approaches, you know, st starting from the original long durée, the Anal school with Brodel and Le Goff and, and, and Duby and others, who were not necessarily interested in nationalism, but there is a, a lot of analytical tools that one can use there to build uh, that kind of uh, uh, approach to, to study of, of uh, nation formation. Then there is the neo-Marxist school, to some extent influenced by Brodel, Wallerstein, and Chase Dunn and Arigi, and there are a few uh, younger scholars working in this tradition linking you know, the origins of capitalism and origins of nationalism. Uh, then there is, there is the Elysian tradition of habitus, of national habitus, you know, his book on Germans, and there are a number of people working in that area as well, which is quite long drain in some ways. And then there is the neo Weberian tradition of uh, Mann and Tilly, <coughs> Randall Collins, uh, and I, I, in some respect, work within this tradition. I, and maybe uh, focusing on slightly different things to what Jonathan does, but he's also part of this gang. <laughs> so what I want to do is really kind of uh, 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 focus on issues that I think are, are really a uh, way for, for within this tradition to look at the long durée and, and how this can help us understand you know, the, the transformation of uh, nation states and nationalism. So my fo focus is very much on three issues. Uh, the, the main issue really is uh, coercive organizational power. Uh, so here I share views that Mann in particular has developed on, on the importance of organizational power and his point about how ideas matter, but they, they don't really, cannot do much unless they're organized. And that's, that's really an important point. What I do uh, differently is that I, uh, much of his focus really is on the state. My focus is broader. So obviously I, I look at the state and different formations of states through time, 
but I look at other social organizations and, uh, you know, uh, 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 private corporations and churches and political parties and social movements throughout history and all of that. Uh, and I also uh, emphasize more the coercive aspect of organizational power. I won't go into details here. I don't really have time on this. But for me, uh, most organizations contain really important coercive uh, capacity. Some have more than others. Some are explicitly so. Military organizations, the police uh, and, and the state. Others are less so, but there is a still a strong coercive component. So if you look at, at the, you know, from the long durée point of view, why this matters? It matters in, in, in many respects because uh, uh, nation states don't come uh, you know, out of thin air. They don't, you know, I think John uh, Hutchinson was right in that sense. We cannot operate with this kind of overly revolutionary understanding of, of the past. Uh, there are huge differences. Obviously, nation states are profoundly different to other uh, uh, forms of polity throughout history, empires and city-states and patrimonial kingdoms and chiefdoms and so on and so forth. But there are certain organizational ingredients that have to be there in place on which nation-states develop and expand. So my focus is less on culture, uh, no, less on biology, and more on organizational capacity. You know, how it grows, how it expands. It can also collapse. This is reversible. It's not a kind of evolutionary thing. So, you know, we, we can think of various examples. You know, if you look at the contemporary, uh, you know, state, nation state of uh, uh, Germany, Federal Republic of Germany, you can, you can look throughout history how there are certain things, much of our focus has been on cultural similarities, but the focus should really be on organizational similarities, how we, we can go from, you know, Holy Roman Empire to uh, Brandenburg, Prussia to, I don't know, all the way Weimar, Germany, and, and look for some things, how institutions develop, you know, how parliaments develop, how uh, uh, civil service develops, how it expands, how it changes. So these are profoundly different uh, organizations, but there's an element of organizational continuity that is necessary, uh, that, you know, that o over the long periods of time that, that, that is there in place. If it, don't, it, if it wasn't, it, it, it couldn't really develop, it couldn't expand, and so on and so forth. Uh, and, and that's, you know, we can do this empirically everywhere. And in that context, recently uh, I was uh, uh, editing a special issue on empires and nation states, and uh, John uh, Bruley contributed there as well, where we were looking, most of the contributors were looking at similarities between the 19th century empires, which were becoming nationalizing, and, and the nation states. You find lots of similarities, and some of these similarities are very much organizational similarities. So that's one element that I look at. The second element is ideological power. And obviously nationalism is, is an ideology, not only an ideology, and, uh, and nationalism for me is, is a, uh, a profoundly modern. So, so the, uh, I don't see it. Uh, in, in a sense, it's modern for all sorts of reasons, you know, the Gellnerian reasons, necessity of a certain number of uh, level of literacy and presence of educational systems and infrastructural power and all these other things that are quite fami familiar to all of us. It's modern also in terms of how it conceptualizes the world and how people see themselves in this world in terms of popular legitimacy, in terms of sense of belonging, and, and all these other things. Uh, but what is also important is that this ideology does not, again, appear out of nowhere. It is built on something uh, that has been there before. Again, for me, not, not culture, but uh, uh, proto-ideologies. So I differentiate between ideology and proto-ideology. For me, ideologies are modern, but they are different uh, values and ways of living before modernity, and they are proto-ideological. They're uh, you know, particular versions of religious beliefs, particular mythological uh, traditions, civilizing nations, imperial doctrines, and all sorts of other things. So nationalisms build on these. So th there, there we can see often a link between 
uh, nationalism in religion, nationalism in mythology. And the myth of common descent that, is very, uh, that features very strongly in most nationalisms and in Anthony's own uh, work is an interesting one. You know, and we can look how it shifts over time, particularly in European contexts, how myth of common descent was very much an aristocratic thing. You know, it mattered that you had to prove you know, that you have uh, credentials, that your family can be traced to some other aristocratic family. And it, how it was democratized over time, it became uh, uh, you know, identified with a particular nation. Uh, and we can talk about you know, all sorts of other things, the notion of victimhood, which was often identified with kings and saints, and then it became democratized, and people became victims and heroes and, and all sorts of other things. So in that sense, uh, the continuity is important, but I don't see it as a culture, I see it as ideological, tied with the organizational capacity. And the third element, very briefly, uh, that I look at, because both of these are quite large-scale structural uh, processes, what I look is also kind of micro, micro level, uh, 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 particularly uh, micro solidarity, how it's generated and how it's uh, uh, kind of uh, 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 deployed and, and uh, tapped into, if you like, by uh, organizational, different social organizations. So, so in that respect, I think points that Smith often makes about import, emotional importance of, of nationalism, uh, what, what is important here really is that we uh, and here I, I borrow from Randall Collins, you know, much of our, our uh, emotional ties are people uh, that, that, we, that matter to us in, in our daily interaction, you know, so family and, and our friends and perhaps neighbors and, uh, you know, peers and, and so many of these other groups. And we, and we know research done on terrorism and on uh, uh, wars, people behaving on the battlefield and uh, revolutionaries, most of them are really very much built around these small networks of friendship and uh, uh, kinship and, and, and so many other things. So in a sense, this is universal. This is something that you find throughout time. So the distinction that uh, both John and, and Stephen uh, mentioned about the Gemeinschaft and Gesellschaft, I also don't like that distinction because for me there is a lot of community in modernity, in, in a sense, it's just differently shaped. That, that's the thing. Uh, so in, in modernity, in, uh, and I, this is where nation states differ from previous forms of uh, 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 social organization, is they have capacity, they have organizational capacity, they have ideological penetration uh, to link this micro-solidarity and project it at, at, at this great canvas. So this is where nationalism, and that's why nationalism often speaks in the language of kinship, motherland and fatherland and our brothers and sisters, uh, and we see it you know, in a sense, through these organizational channels, through these ideological channels, we tend to perceive the world in these terms. This is where we differ from uh, our, our great predecessors. So this, this is an element which uh, is, is an important element. These three processes are worth uh, exploring in, in empirically, and I do that to some extent in my work, you know, looking at over long periods of time to see how you know, how and, 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 and why modernity matters. So in a sense, you can be modernist and you, and you can take a long durée view at the same time. Uh, so just to conclude, uh, 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 basically, so if you look at the future of nationalism, obviously we don't uh, uh, have a crystal ball to say how things will develop, uh, but uh, uh, what, what uh, for me is important, and what in some respect, uh, in all these debates about new nationalism don't take into account is that, and I think what Susan was, was talking about, the, the American case is an interesting one, that 
as she, she rightly said, Trump is not a complete surprise. Uh, it, it is a surprise to those who didn't see nationalism before. But nationalism has been there, you know, not only in U.S., all over the world for the past 250 years or so, and particularly since the Second World War. So what matters is really, you know, how these organizational capacities and the organizational structure of the state in ideological penetration and micro-solidarity link, link together. And so nationalism can, can have different uh, strands. It can move in different directions. It can be more uh, explicit. It could be more, more crude, if you like. It could be more, you know, softer civic version of it. But it's there. It was there. It was there during the Obama years. It was there before, and, uh, and it, it will continue in that respect. So as long as the nation state and other f forms of social organizations dominate this world, uh, there is no uh, a chance that nationalism will go away. Okay, so I'll stop here. Thanks. to our four speakers in this round table. We have a, a good amount of time, although time passes very fast. Um, I'm going to suggest that we, it, it, it could be questions, it could be observations, because this is a round table discussion, um, but it must be reasonably short, so that as many people can have an opportunity to make those contributions. And if something's just drifting I might indicate that I think it is drifting. And I think probably what we do is maybe take three or four uh, questions, stroke observations, and then ask for responses from the panel and just see how many times we can make that round. So uh, if I can start here with uh, John Hutchinson and uh, then the gentleman on the fourth row. Well, thank you for a very rich set of presentations. Um, uh, I was particularly interested for my own interest in war for <laughs> National and Surgeon Mary's because I find it uh, uh, but uh, just following on from her uh, because Surgeon um, Mary's bringing out the fact that there are, there are a whole series of multiple and simultaneous identities at any one time can I direct a question uh, initially to Jonathan because I don't understand this uh, question: Does identity come before power, or power become before identity? They both must emerge simultaneously. Um, you cannot exercise power without some kind of values, which are going to determine your selection, or power over whom. You have to make some decisions about that. Equally, um, you cannot exercise any kind of agency unless there's some form of uh, a set of networks that you're using. Um, so this, this, I th this, I th this dichotomy, I think, uh, simply doesn't work. I think it's the, like the Gemeinschaft, Gesellschaft uh, 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 conception. Because, uh, as I was just pointing out, people are born into the world they're born into families, they're, uh, churches, ethnic groups, classes, and so forth. Um, but uh, they always, uh, at certain points, there are tensions between these organizational identities which uh, people have to navigate at the point at which questions of identity come to the fore. And these questions of identity come to the fore at times of shocks, like warfare or mass migration. 
Um, so, for example, mass migration to America. Uh, one, uh, Anthony and his ethnic origins of nations say one of the, one of the uh, circumstances under which you get a crystallization of ethnic identities is when a group mig mass migrates to a new land and has to uh, justify its possession of the land, at which point a, a new kind of identity forms at the same time as a new kind of society. So, uh, okay. That's fine. You, did, you didn't drift too far, John. <laughs> so, full, full thumb about yes, gentlemen there. Yeah, I'm going to move to the sides in a moment. Um, I'm just wondering if the panel could comment on the relationship between modern nationalism and gender and uh, the significance of that, particularly with Donald Trump and Vladimir Putin, who uh, proffer a highly masculinized uh, conception of the nation and uh, militaristic as well. And um, what do you think the implications of that for how uh, nationalism uh, will, will develop in, in the near to medium-term future? Thank you. I've moved my gaze to this side so I don't just take the center aisle. Uh, gentleman there, you're a level off. Thank you. Um, thinking about the future of nationalism, I want to go back to that uh, arresting um, imagery of Adam and Eve in the New Eden. And to a certain extent, it seems to me that modern nationalism was trying to suggest that the new Adam and Eve are planting their own tree of good and evil. They will be calling the shots. And I wonder what is the moral vocation of uh, nationalism in the 21st century, even if it is a, a self-annihilating one. And the reason that I'm asking that is that if men, Adam and Eve, are to plant this moral tree, the main way that we have tried to do that is the social contract. And however we see that social contract, to a Hobbesian, Kantian, Rousseauian, Lockean models, in the eyes of many, and Brexit and Trump triumph is just two cases in point, those various social contracts seems to so many to be broken. And if these are broken, nationalism in it by itself might become morally hollow. What, if this is true, the implications of that? Thank you. Just wonder if there's anybody on the right, well, the left wing, actually, um, who wants a question? No? Nobody? Take one, take one more from the centre then, and I think um, Athena was the first person I saw, and then bring them back to the panel. Thank you very much. I want to ask a truly innocent question. The use of the word populism has been a recurrent uh, word um, today. And can I, uh, and on the panel, and can I ask you what you mean by, what do we mean by popular, or do you mean by populism? I mean, would uh, Count Gulas Andrashi in the 19th century, 1848, be called uh, uh, a populist uh, today? Uh, or Adamandius Corais in, in, in Paris, uh, trying to, to arouse uh, the French in support, and to arouse also the Greeks against the Ottomans? Um, or Thomas Jefferson, would he, would he be seen as a populist today? Uh, how do you define populism? I wonder, Penny, whether it might be a good idea to have the microphone available oh, now to the panel really? as they answer. So, um, well, I mean, questions were raised for everybody and some questions were, were sent to specific people. So can I just ask if each, as we go along, if each speaker wishes to respond... Uh, at all. Um, I'll start. Yeah. 
Well, I won't be long. Uh, maybe just um, on nationalism and gender, um, and, and which is related to this question of identity and power, I, um, I think, obviously. Uh, to me, but again, I, I come from a general um, a political sociology background, which is difficult is to try to single out the national dimension in a general habitus, which is a question of power and identity. And, and you, you cannot just... Uh, I think if we believe in something like habitus, it mixes gender, class, uh, ethnicity, and, and nation all together. And the question is how they interfere and, and, and how they are articulated. Um, I'm, I'm not so much in the long durée. I, I perfectly understand that, that people have to do that. And, and I, I, I read it, actually, and I, and I use it. But if we are interested in, in what um, um, people are doing now, I think it's important to understand how they get educated and how they get socialized, and they get socialized with all of it mixed. What is sure is that all the national imagination around the nation is completely gendered. And, and, and women have not the same position in the nation that, that, that men. And, and if I'm obsessed with this uh, picture, it's belonging with all these uh, men and, and with arms. It's because we, we perfectly know that the uh, nationalism gives women a different uh, 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 place in society, and it's complete gendered um, um, imagination. So um, I'm, I would be very much in favor of, of being interested in another kind of durée, which is not the historical one, but the life one, and, and maybe trying to understand what happened with nationalism from the very beginning of life, because we have a series of, of now of work done on children, and we know that it begins very, very at the beginning, but they learn at the same time to be national, to be, know what kind of ethnicity they have, if they are men or women, uh, their gender relationship, and also their class position in society. So it's all, all together, and, and that's the problem with the national identity um, word, is that not that people don't have identities, of course we have identities, but it's not, you cannot separate one dimension from the others, and the idea of habitus is very much that all these identities, uh, all these layers of identities are actually powered, uh, socialized, and, 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 and you learn to know where you belong in the world on, on each of these dimensions, so it's all related. Okay, I'm a historian, so I will go backwards. Um, populism. <sighs> no, I don't think Jefferson would ever be seen by a populist, by anybody, certainly not by himself or anyone he was living with. I mean, people talk about Trump and populism. It's not quite the same thing. I mean, populism in America in the late 19th century was, you know, the move to try and get more um, you know, emphasis on labor. It was the rise of the populist party, which is very short-lived, which was kind of subsumed into the progressive element. So Trump is not a true populist. But I think when people talk about populism in the context of Trump, they mean that's the buttons he pressed to get elected. So, I mean, it was obviously a huge paradox of a billionaire... Well, he's maybe a billionaire. No one's seen his tax returns, so he could actually be bankrupt. But um, <laughs> this idea of somebody so wealthy who's appointed people who are so wealthy, like Rex Tillerson and all the rest, and, but he's, he pressed those buttons that, you know, it's going to be jobs, 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 as he tweeted only two hours ago. Jobs, jobs, jobs in Michigan. Michigan, Michigan. So, um, yeah, populism in that context. It's not populism as it was understood before, but I think it's just a shorthand way of saying that's the buttons he pressed. He wasn't... I beg your pardon? It's the, last it's the, buttons, he it's the buttons he pressed. 
No, democracy. No, democracy doesn't come into it. It's, not, it's, it's a good idea, though. Well, not physically pressing buttons, but in the media, <laughs> you know, talking to the workers, talking about jobs, talking about people being neglected, you know, by his own class. In fact, I mean, it, it, it doesn't make any sense. But that's what he did. Hmm? So we can't really have a dialogue of this sort because no one else. Yes. I, mean, I think people can't hear. I mean, yes, very much. I mean, he's an elite person who positioned himself as somebody who was going to stand up to the elites. I guess because he knew them. Anyway, does that answer the populism question? So, um, Eden, social contract. Hmm. I think one of the things that I'm trying to, to drive at is that America has also a problem not so much with the social contract as the social imaginary. There's too many people who are never part of the nation. I mean, I didn't really have time to talk about it, but this is the issue. I mean, they have a revolution, but actually they get very upset at who fights for them. It's, it's the um, working class, I guess, Washington would say. It's poorer people. It's people who are not perceived to be desirable parts of the nation. The same thing happens in the Civil War, to be absolutely blunt about it. I mean, the Union propaganda trumpets black regiments, and this is good news, but that's not how people feel about it. So until the social imaginary changes to be more approximate to what it says in the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution, no new social contract can be constructed. But this is what I mean by, I think, Smith's nation of intent concept is very, very useful because America does seem to be a continuous nation of intent, never arriving, always working towards something that's always slipping away, which brings me to gender. Well, Trump, Putin, and, um, and the editor of the Daily Mail, I think, today, or was it the Daily Mirror, in terms of sexist imagery. Yes, it's Daily Mail. It was a Daily Mail. It's a shocker, yes. Um, they're not the only ones. I mean, yes, Trump's very sexually predatory, it would seem, Putin. At least Putin's polite about sexism. Did he give that speech where he said Russian prostitutes were the best in the world, which <laughs> it shows a certain machismal support Marcus, yeah. there. Yeah, Trump, Trump, I think it's just insecurity, isn't it? And I think it is actually insecurity in Trump's case, um, because I, I, saw, I heard him give an interview once many years ago. Um, we talked about why he divorced Ivanka, and it's because she wasn't home making his dinner, and he was genuinely upset about that. What the implications are for gender and nationalism, I think, and possibly not very good. I honestly don't think we're going to be going backwards, but I think, again, it's a bit like what I was saying about American nationalism, that, you know, we, we, we talk the talk about gender equality. I, I work in, we all, most of us work in universities where the equality, diversity agenda is papered on every sodding corridor, but the hard reality is, as a woman, you still have to navigate a lot of fairly dodgy opinions. So if we can actually start implementing the gender, a more inclusive gender agenda in our own lives, I think it will filter up to nationalism. Yeah, just the gender question as well. I, I think, uh, I mean, obviously, historically, there was always a link uh, between militarism and, and uh, masculinity, particularly in times of crisis. Obviously, we have all the images uh, uh, where you have a really strong uh, uh, gender re uh, definitions with, you know, emphasizing female purity, you know, that particularly... All right. Are they not? Okay. But what's interesting for me, in a way, it's uh, how... Uh, 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 because nationalism is malleable, it's plastic, uh, so you can it, it can accommodate very different uh, articulations of gender. And, and I was just thinking, you've all seen that photograph of uh, Swedish uh, uh, ministers, all women, 
you know, sort of responding to photograph taken with Vice President Pence and all men around him, although there was an, another one recently taken, which in a way shows, uh, you know, this was a kind of Swedish response to, to you know, American nationalism from a Swedish nationalism. We, we are... We are different. We are, we are above you. you know, we are kind of more enlightened. We are more gender exclusive, ex- inclusive. Sorry. Uh, but it, 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 can, it still works within these parameters of, you know, and, and, you know it shows that you are superior. You know? So in that respect, uh, uh, you know, the, 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 the gender element can work either way. In, in, in a way, it can be reshaped to reinforce a particular version of, 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 of specific nation state uh, uh, for me. You know, so masculine, masculinity has been historically dominant element in, in, in nationalist narrative, but uh, it, it may not necessarily always be the case. With the populism, I think, I mean, I, I don't really use the term populism. I, I think Cass uh, Mudd has written well on, on, on populism more as a strategy rather than, than a substance. So uh, I prefer to focus more on, on ideologies and, uh, rather than populism as, as a that, that's all right. <laughs> um, I'll, I'll try and respond to John first because he directed a question uh, straight to me. Um, yes, I mean, there's, uh, you know, the world as we find it, you know, of course, identity and power and organization are always combined and finding some sort of temporal causal priority is, is very difficult, yes. And, you know, my aphorism is really meant more to suggest a kind of uh, more theoretical or quasi-functionalist, you know, argument about priority in the sense that uh, I do think that uh, the concept of power is very fundamental to all social explanation because it's related to causation and uh, in a way that more fundamental way, logically, than the concept of identity, right? Things happen because um, well, agency is power, isn't it? Don't, don't, uh, let's, yeah, let's Yes, but, uh, but the question is, I mean, like even your own example of, of, you know, Americans arriving and needing to lay claim to lands and deal with people already present, to me that suggests an initial state of relative disorganization, needing to get yourself organized, needing to build an identity in order to, uh, around the project of having enough power to secure your position. I mean, there, if you look at the example closely... Uh, it could, yeah, it could be. I mean, I, I freely admit that I don't think you can entirely get rid of functionalism. You need to constantly kind of qualify it. But, uh, you know, there is a place for functionalist arguments as long as they're not uh, final word, right? Um, so, yes, I mean, you know, in a sense, it's a statement from me about the, the, you know, explanatory priority of the concept of power over identity. And I think you can find situations where... Uh, um, there is power without identity, just because there are forms of bureaucratic organization that can achieve things without, because they're so institutionalized, routinized, it, they don't require strong identification with the forms of social organization that can achieve ends. Uh, but that often, you know, you, just because there's intense identity, I mean, you know, I think of, uh, I'm thinking of the ghost dance uh, in uh, the American Plains Indians in the Midwest, this kind of ritual that was meant to intensify identity, and uh, it was caught up with acts of resistance against the white settlers and, and, and militaries that moved west. And, and this intensification ident- of identity um, uh, 
was a, you know, didn't give people, didn't in itself give power. You know, uh, unfortunately, the, the, the members of the Plains Indians who were involved in this, you know, the identity itself wasn't sufficient. And so I'm not saying that they're always coordinated, but on balance, I think that power uh, tends to explain why uh, identity consolidates and crystallizes in certain, around certain sets of organizations. Um, the, uh, lots have been said about gender. I'll just say a bit about populism, which is just to say, um, uh, yes, I mean, I like, I'm another American, so when I, I have in the back of my mind the 1890s in America as an example. And uh, I, you know, I think one of the things that's interesting and striking as a parallel with the current situation is that happened during a period in which uh, there was a great uh, strong sense of displacement by smallholding uh, uh, farmers uh, in the face of kind of an early version of agribusiness, you know, larger uh, agricultural business interests, problems of debt to banks back east, a strong anti-elite critique. So there was, you know, there was, and it was mixed up with labor politics, but there, there was an issue of people in one part of the economy feeling left behind and having an intense sense of a critique of some kind of rather abstracted elite that they didn't understand that seemed farther away. And, I, you know, I'm struck by, yeah. in certain ways, uh, well, when we use when I'm using it now, or I, others use it now in regard to Trump, I think there is are certain interesting parallels uh, there. Um, uh, what is the moral implication of nationalism? I don't know. I don't think of it as a moral concept. I think of it as just a condition of life, and I don't know what else to say to that. So. Thank you. Well, let's try uh, another round. Atsuku, uh, uh, and then Eric Kaufman, um, and then. Thank you very much. This is very, very, the whole conference has been very interesting. Um, this is a kind of twisted version of long delay uh, question. Um, you know, recently, I've been mingling with um, Ayaska scholars against my better judgment because they have money, etc., etc. But uh, one of the things they are really, in, um, especially Chinese scholars, are very uh, excited about is so called non Western IR that the thesis is that uh, um, in East Asia, until, say, the 19th century, there was a definitely different uh, world order. Temporary, uh, the temporary world was differently organized from the West. Um, Cytocentric world order or tributary system, whatever you call it. Just, um, the relationship between the polities in that particular space was differently organized. And on top of that, somebody like Duara argued that um, Sinocentric world had a different conception. They had a, had a conception of totalizing political community, but which is not necessarily e exactly the equivalent of what has developed in the West. Now, the, uh, the fact is that uh, all this order has been taken over by the Western Vesperian system, etc., etc. Does it mean that these past does, uh, can, can be forgotten, can be di uh, discarded? Does it have any, you know, do we have to pay attention to it? Um, I was reminded of this when I was listening to Natividad's um, earlier presentation about the use of um, indig uh, indigenous um, identity or ethnic identity, etc., etc. Um, 
talking about future of nationalism uh, where it's developing how uh, how far um, how uh, how far should we take it seriously these, these non western pre modern um, legacies seriously Okay, I'll be trying to be quick here just for, it's actually for Sunisha and Jonathan, really two issues, resonance and the media. So Anthony talked a lot about resonance. Political power holders, it's often in their interest to have a united nation when that, particularly in Africa is where, where he was thinking, when you propagate an identity and it doesn't take root. Um, isn't that a problem for any power-centered type of theory? So that's that's one question. The other one is to do with institutions that carry identities, and this could be for all of you actually, um, can the media, can media be one form of institution that can propagate and carry an identity? It doesn't have to be a union, a church, um, or a state. Uh, okay, my question is for Professor Duchesne, and because I also come for, from a uh, European studies background and I'm interested in all the debates on European identity and so on and also to put my question in the B-League's uh, context do you think that ever, although maybe it's too late for this question but uh, do you think that ever the, the unwaved European flag will, will kind of become, will transform into a waved flag and isn't that even desirable at this moment? Uh, anybody one more question? Can I take, take Robert, and then I think there'll be time. Yeah, go on. Mine's just really quick. I just want to pick up on what Eric was saying on the power-centered focus, right? Power, but set aside material power, right? So if you focus more on political power itself as an ideological concept, requires legitimation, right? Requires loyalty to that power to actually influence actions. And for me, right, what Smith did, what ethnosymbolism does, is gives you a code to understand why specific power structures are received as legitimate, right? So in that sense, the, the constitutive process is mutual because the power is legitimized, which gives it power, which then actually allows it to be actually influencing political action, right? And so the power-centered dynamic for me is not so much power creates identity or identity creates power, but rather the constitutive process of the two creates legitimation, which then actually gives that power action and agency. And so I just want to pick up on that and actually ask you just to reflect on that a little bit because in your answer coming back, you didn't, you didn't, I don't think I heard you actually mention legitimacy coming back, right, as to the driver of power, particularly if you're talking about Demoy and entering, if you're talking about what answers that sleight of hand of nationalism, right, John's little bit there, that the, what, answering that question of who is the people, that actually the people, political power is legitimate to the extent to which it answers that question correctly and gives the nation that identity, right, to be the legitimate holder of that power. I think may, maybe just take one more question because this might be the last round and this is the last hand I've seen indicated. Yeah. Um, um, it's more of an observation than a question, but I promise I'll keep it as quick as I can. Um, doesn't the, um, regarding what Jonathan and John have been saying about um, the uh, relationship between identity and power and how you, how you might be able to have one without the other, doesn't the current travails of the... Um, the European Union rather bear out Jonathan's point. I mean, it's clearly an institution that has a great deal of power, but its kind of lack of an, an identity is, seems to be at the 
core of its problems here, lack of an identity that can see off um, the big problem of countries wanting to, to, to leave it or questioning their, their membership. And the EU seems to bear out both the ethno-symbolist position that you need a, a common store of myths and memories and the constructivist position that you can try and not manufacture an identity but heavily manipulate people's general ideas of, of, of identity into a kind of new one. And I also think on a smaller level what's going on in Northern Ireland, which no one mentions in England when they're talking about Brexit, hardly anyone mentions it. Northern Ireland is, is also an example. Politicians there have power, but they can't forge a common identity because the other needs of power, whether, whether it's unionists with trying to um, keep their, their, ve their constitutional veto going, or nationalists who want an all-island uh, framework of things, those needs of power kind of prevent the, um, the, 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 um, the forging of a, of a common Northern Irish identity. So I'm, I'm just agreeing with, with Jonathan here, I suppose. Right. Thank you. Can we come back to the panel and again, again go down in the same way? Thank you. Um, so regarding the, the question about um, the European flag, um, I think looking from an individual perspective, what was clear 20, 30 years ago um, regarding in the data we, we had at the time is that there was no antagonism between feeling national and feeling European. And on the contrary, you needed to feel national in order to feel European which means that the feeling national was in Western Europe um, a way of, of having a, a us, a we, a kind of mobilization um, into um, well, uh, collective, uh, collective being, but defined at the national or the country level. But it, was, it, it would give you to, uh, this, this relationship to Europe. What happened is that I think the European Union didn't choose to play this game for political reason, obvious political reason between politicians at the national level and the European level. It was a direct competition, so they didn't choose to try to become a nation, a federal state, which was, I mean, a discussion at the beginning, and very clearly they didn't want to do that. And later, all this idea of people being kind of computers, we, would we could react. Because what Billy tried to say with the unweighed flag is not that people react at signals. It's on the contrary. It's the idea that it's absolutely everywhere in such a way that you cannot have the liberty to think differently. This is what it means. This is not that because, because these flags as air suddenly you, be, you, you become national. That, that's absolutely not his approach. What he feels is that, and this is this question of rhetorical psychology, I, I, we're not going into that, but the question of human liberty for, for him is how capacity of negotiating always one truth against the other, of having the choice what we want to believe. And with the current level of banal nationalism, you cannot anymore. I mean, we should be... It's amazing to see how many people say they are proud of being of their country. This is a not normal results for surveys. 
usually in surveys, people you know, have contrasting opinion regarding national, I mean, this nationalism question now. Everybody is proud of being, of, uh, maybe not very proud, maybe only a little bit proud, but, but people, I mean, they know it, so we don't have a choice. And this is a question of, of, of national, uh, of national uh, banal nationalism. So there is no question about introducing now banal Europeanism. This is just a complete misunderstanding of Billig's point about national, uh, banal nationalism. And, and the European Union, for very obvious uh, political reasons, didn't choose to become a federal state. And, and, and now nationalism is just uh, getting away with the European Union. For, and we could, I could go back, I, I, I just pick one question at the first round, but we could go back to this question of the social contract. You can always say, well, it's good to have the European Union, but what we know is that we have a, a in, increase, in, enormous increase of inequalities in our countries. So here we have the problem of the social contract. We cannot expect people to want to go on with what is there when it's not good for them. I mean, we have uh, lots of, of, of elements of, of proof of the fact that uh, European integration was actually not good for the majority of, of people. And, and, so, and, and why, why should it say that they want to continue with it? And it's, it's true in, in, in most countries, in, even now on the continent. Well, so it was really easy, I think, three or four decades before to choose to, but it, it depended on, 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 on a negotiation between countries, and these countries behave as, as nations in this sense that they didn't want to actually, uh, you know, go together in, in the continuation of history. Um, regarding that, well, I, I will not go long because, sorry. Um, about the media, I mean, it's, it's of course, it, this is the first institution this is the first one. This is where banal nationalism is absolutely everywhere. So I'm, at the moment, I'm, I'm listening to BB4 instead of France Inter or France Culture, and it's amazing. It's a different way of doing it. But, I mean, I'm so close to home, and I'm just living in a different situation. And, 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 and I'm always, you know, it's very difficult to feel concerned by what it said at, in the radio when just being in this country because I'm not from this country, which is amazing. I mean, it's, I don't see any difference between the people here in this room and the one I, 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 I met in Paris. But when the media talk to me, they tell me every morning that I'm, I don't belong to this country, which is, this is yes, so this is the first. And, and, and what kind of finance and power organization beyond the media, what, it, what is there? This is, this is the core of the power relationship and the violence of, of, of nationalism, of course. And, and I, we cannot have this discussion now, but between the, the discussion between power and agency, I think the, the missing word is mobilization. What is, what is national identity? What is nationalism made for? It's to mobilize people, not to give them agency. Agency, that would be a very different kind of um, yes, of socialization, I think. <laughs> Gracious, well, I suppose, following on from that, um, yeah, I mean, I think that won't sound like something out of Star Wars. I mean, there's an imbalance in the force, isn't there? And there's an imbalance in the European Union with the economic power. And I think, I hesitate to even try to answer Atsuko's question about the Sinocentric world. Um, the Western world wasn't the same you know, when American, you know, colonists went across to this new world, I mean, 
the structure, how they perceived their role in the universe was very different. I think it's important to have an acknowledgement of the power of indigenous or ethnic pasts, but only if, only if it helps establish a sense of equality, because I think without equality, as we've seen with the European Union, things do, the centre cannot hold, and things fall apart. But I think if it becomes exclusionary, and in the United States it has become very exclusionary, I mean, I feel that, as an historian, I feel that I'm looking at going back 30 years. I mean, in the 1970s, 1980s, you know, if you weren't Native American, you couldn't do Native American history. If you weren't black, you couldn't do black history. If, if you were a woman, you did women's history. And don't think I'm making this up. I've been told on more than one occasion, you are female, well spotted, and you must do women's history. So I think it's fine to reclaim the past and have it as an aspect of the nation, but only if it doesn't then lead to further ruptures, because then nobody wins. Um, the media, yes, I, th I think... <laughs> I don't think we can talk about the media anymore in quite a blanket way. I mean, newspapers, the media was always a tied to political parties. I mean, that was their point. But now we're looking at different things. We're looking at these television programs. We're looking at, you know, Twitter. We're looking at Facebook. We're looking at all different forms of media which seek to try and distance themselves from a particular political party and try to position themselves as objective, which, of course, they're not. So I think we have to be very careful um, with saying media and not actually asking what particular media we're talking about and what what their angle is um, would be my view. Atsuko, I think there, there was a question on, essentially on multiple modernities, I think. <laughs> and, and I think you're right, uh, you know, the, the, uh, if you go back into the 19th century and 18 and further, you see more and more cultural difference and different ways of organizing life and, and different ways of envisaging communities and and also different social organizations, imperial and city-states, and all sorts of different things. Uh, what is different in, in the 20th century, particularly after the Second World War, you, you get, and I think in that respect, St Stanford School and Mayer and all these are right, you, you get much more standardization. So, so I mean, institutions, in some instances, institutions are imitated. You know, we have all sorts of empirical data on that, constitutions and health systems and all sorts of other things. Uh, so there is a, there is a, uh, 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 this kind of organizational isomorphism taking place. My focus would be more on coercive elements there rather than the cultural ones that they emphasize. But I think that that's something that you see. You know, there is a greater uh, standardization. It doesn't work everywhere. There are exceptions and all of that. And, and then, uh, you know, Southeast Asia is, becomes part of that kind of, I don't want to say global world, but, you know, kind of that uh, different type of social order. Uh, so the second question, Eric's question is, uh, yeah, I mean, the question of resonance is important, but often uh, cohesion is created, again, I would say, through, through violence. And, and we know from, you know, work, again, from Herbst on Africa and uh, Centeno in Latin America, why there was no coherence, there was no uh, interstate wars in the same way as they were, the Tilly showed us. That's not the only reason, but it is an important reason. You know, how civil wars, in particular versions of, not any civil war, American civil war was very cohesive because it, it eventually came at the result of African-Americans being excluded from that narrative in order to bring that cohesion. But many forms of civil wars have been, uh, didn't work towards generating that kind of national cohesion. And, and I think some of these studies are really, really useful. Uh, uh, and you, we can say that a lot of, uh, you know, in European context, after that, a lot of uh, uh, cohesion has come very much from 
extremely centralized uh, violent states. You know, fr French uh, state became homogenized by killing off those who were against it, against, you know, so, and many others have done it. So I think violence is important <laughs> in that respect. We, we forget it once, you know, it, we, you don't go back and, and uh, now you can focus on other aspects. You can focus on cultural similarities and things like that, but coercion has always been an important part in organizing social order, whether we like it or not. So my focus would be there. <laughs> uh, yeah, I think I'm going to try and kind of work backwards. Um, I mean, yes, uh, thanks, thanks for agreeing with me. Um, the, the, uh, uh, I mean, I, I would say that, you know, it works both ways. I mean, my point is, is precisely it's not that uh, power always generates identity. It's that when there is strong identity, it's usually because there's some generation of power involved. So the European Union is a good example. And conversely, Brexit is a good example in the sense that that involved a sort of intensification of British and English identity. But I don't think the long-term effect of that is going to be an increase of power in, in UK society or for, for its state. I think it's going to be weakening. Uh, so the converse is true. Um, Legitimation, yes, of course. I mean, I, my, my point would be simply that uh, um, uh, it seems to me, I mean, we can say, uh, you can read the ethno-symbolist argument of Smith as making that argument, although it seems to me that he often didn't talk that much about legitimation and tended to talk more about identity, yes. Uh, but, um, but that seems to me to be a, a friendly amendment to what I've been saying, unless I'm misunderstanding. Um, and and the other thing is, but to, you know, uh, we always have to remember that legi legitimation is a reciprocal concept to the concept of authority. So it, when you are legitimating something, you're not just legitimating an identity. You usually, you're legitimating a source of authority, right? <laughs> Which is a, can be a state, or it can be a set of institutions and organizations within a state, or you know, it can be lots. You know, lots of different things can be legitimated, but generally, it's not. It's you know that concept of authority is, is very important to the power dimension of what we're talking about. Um, uh, I'm, uh, I'm, uh, yes, let me echo Sunisha and say, sure, the media can have power. Um, and I'm not sure I totally grasp the resonance question, but, uh, but uh, again, you want to make some analytic distinctions between the power of media as a, as a kind of instrumental power of, of, you know, as a kind of capacity to do, do certain things through communication versus the more agential, you know, intentional organizational power of, um, you know, like a media enterprise or conglomerate that is, you know, wants to affect things. You know, there's a difference between uh, Rupert Murdoch and just, you know, the airwaves, right? Um, uh, and I don't know if you wanted to just, just briefly say what, if I'm missing something about the resonance question, is it just... If the, if the identity isn't there to get mobilized, um, well, I mean, you know, it, it depends to do what. I mean, you know, because, because the power to drop bombs on people and you know, various, there are various kinds of power, and some can do, can exercise, you know, be exercised with 
total disregard for that question. But if you are talking about mobilizing people, uh, which I would say is a way of organizing people so that their capacity, their power is, is focused and can achieve things, then yes. Uh, and there, there is a, a, we're coming back to this chicken or the egg thing. Do you create the identity or, or do you, uh, does it have to be there to receive the resonance? Um, and uh, we can fight about chickens and eggs later. Um, but, uh, I mean, and just the, the last point, I, I guess, yes, I, I mean, I certainly, I, I don't see anything that we're saying uh, about the long durée as implying that um, uh, we, we therefore wouldn't be interested in uh, other periods of history or, or, you know, that have gone different directions or seem to have been overtaken by... You know, uh, you know, kind of modern nationalism, uh, but again, you know, the argument there would be precisely for me, somebody like me, probably a bit like him as well, uh, that uh, you know, you know, when I was a graduate student, I learned a lot about Mes- Mesoamerica and the rise of the Aztecs and various kind of city-states in, in that part of the world, and it is very instructive if you're, if you're interested in, in how power gets formulated and builds up and then collapses in sort of cyclical ways, to have some cases to look at that are uh, not the modern cases, but other cases. Because un- nonetheless, the, you know, if you're a generalizing social scientist, you think nonetheless there will be some parallels that are interesting. So. Thank you. Okay. Well, uh, first of all, let me thank the roundtable speakers for dealing with the questions as well as giving us a... Uh, stimulating talks. Can I just